one of the, the men who signed this Bible uh, made a deep, deep impression, uh, deep impression on my life. And my relationships with the people in this church continue today. Some of our most generous and significant donors for Mercy Project are members of this church, people who cheer me on, the people who continue to use their talents and gifts to bless my family and me, people who let me and my many children move into their home and live with them for six weeks while someone else from the church finished building our, our beautiful home. So it is not hyperbole for me to say I could spend an entire sermon thanking the people of this church for the gift you have to me, but I don't think that's probably what you want me to do. It's also not lost on me that almost 15 years ago to the day, I stood right here in this exact place on this stage and was married to my wife, Stacy, in just the second wedding in this church building. Justin and Allison Orozco Thompson beat us by two weeks. And my greatest claim to fame, maybe still, in spite of all the other things I've tried to do, uh, one of my friends actually threw the, engage, the wedding ring in a box from the balcony to me on the stage, and I caught it in a baseball glove. I don't know if that's ever been done since then, or if it ever should have been done since then. But I was 22 years old, and yeah. I don't know what else to say about that. So today feels a lot like coming home, and I want to be honest and, and thank you and, and saying that it feels good. It feels good to be home, and it feels good to be here with all of you. As you know, this month's uh, sermon t- series is entitled Christmas Lights. And that's not just a clever play on words. It's really a reference to imagery that we see throughout Scripture. Light, from the beginning of Scripture to the end, is, is a really critical image that's used over and over. And I have the privilege of, of preaching about light from the book of Ephesians. And so since we haven't been in that uh, in that book, let me set Ephesians up for you just a little bit, just to give you some context. So Ephesians is a little bit different than most of the epistles in the New Testament. And it's a little bit different because it's, it's pretty generic. It doesn't have some of the specific language that most of the epistles written to specific churches have. It's not listing a bunch of people's names. It's not dealing with really specific uh, problems. In, in this way, a lot of scholars actually believe Ephesians was maybe intended to be passed around to a number of churches because it, it's really counsel on what God's people anywhere should be doing. And there's even some really interesting stuff, if you're into this kind of thing, about there. About uh, we, we generally believe Paul to be the author of Ephesians, but there's some really fascinating conversation around the authorship of Ephesians because Paul spent three years in Ephesus and he actually was there two different times. The longer one was three years, he tells us in Acts. But there's not, a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of writing in Ephesians that feels really specific to a community that Paul knew for three years and did daily life with. So it's fascinating to kind of think about when the church at Ephesus got this book, uh, when they got this note, this letter, what it was that they would, they would think and how they would uh, receive it. But it's full of this beautiful imagery, especially around the topic of light. And Ephesians can be broken into two parts. The first three chapters of Ephesians are really a a very long and beautiful sort of setting up of the gospel. So if you haven't read Ephesians in a while, you should go back this week and read it. Because it's really got some lovely language 
just about this, this story of what God's been doing from the beginning of time. And then we have a shift into chapters 4 through 6, the second half of Ephesians. And there's this really important word that's used here in the shift. And if you're just reading through Ephesians, it would be very, very easy to miss this. But right when we make the shift from chapters 1 through 3 to 4 through 6, there's a word that's used. It is really simple, and it's the word, therefore. So we get this setting up of this is who God has always been. This is what God has always done, therefore. And then the last three chapters are spent saying, this is what you should do. This is what you should be doing. And so we come to our text for today. Four, chapter 4 and 5 are really the two. I'm going to be in 5, but chapter 4 has these, uh, if this, then that. Or, or you were this and you are that. And it's really this place where the author just goes through and says, look, uh, you used to be people who did things like steal. But don't steal anymore. Actually, do the opposite. Be generous. It used to be people who lied. Don't lie anymore. Tell the truth. You used to be people who used foul language. Don't use foul language anymore. Use words that, that lift each other up. And, and on and on. These, you used to be this, but now you are that. You used to be that, but now you are this. And that carries on into our text in chapter 5. So follow along with me. Chapter 5, verse 8 through 14. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. But try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Sleeper, awake. Rise, from the dead and Christ will shine on you. So just like in chapter 4 here in chapter 5 we get this comparison you used to be in darkness but now you are the light. And I want to point something out here that I think is critical and that is this. The text does not say we are in the light now. It says we actually are the light. I think that's an important difference. You see, street lamps provide light for a circle in a certain part of a street. And so if you want to go out and get under the light of a street lamp, you can kind of make the decision when you want to do that. You could choose if it's been a good day, if you're feeling up to it, if everything's fallen into place, children have behaved, you got enough money in the bank for the, the bills, dinner was good, the dishes are done, you can choose to walk out in the street and go into the light. That's not what the author is saying here. This is not being people in the light. This is being people who are the light. This comes from within us. This is a part of our core. This isn't something we choose. It's not a fleeting feeling for when things all fall into place. It's not a Sunday morning from 10 to 11.30 sort of thing. It's a Monday afternoon and Thursday at noon sort of thing. So much a part of who we are and what we do that it's literally who we are. We are the light. So what does it mean to actually be the light? The text tells us. The fruit of the light, as the text says, a funny mixing of biblical metaphors, by the way. The fruit of the light is found in all that is good 
and right and true. We are light when we find and do and pour ourselves into things that are good and right and true. And it goes on to say that we should find what is pleasing to the Lord, which we'll come back to in a minute. Then verse 11 says we should avoid the unfruitful works of darkness and actually bring them into the light to expose them. And I don't think this is an insignificant distinction. It's easy sometimes for us to say, well, I'm not doing that. That's not my issue. That's not my problem for us to sort of live in a Pollyanna world. But this text makes it pretty clear. It's not just our job to not do those things, but it's our job to actually drag them out into the light to be exposed, to bring injustices out into the light. Those things we know are not right, those things we know that are not good. Again, maybe we're not doing them, maybe we're not responsible, but the text makes it clear our job is still to say, no, this thing is not okay and I have to do something about it. Then it says, everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that becomes visible is light. You see, the light is where God does his work in us. The light is where the truth comes out. The light is where sanctification happens. The light is where salvation takes place. The light is where God redeems us and saves us from ourselves. And when we bring our pain and our sin, and when we bring the world's pain and the world's sin into the light, God meets us there, and he does something with it. And then we have this verse from a song or a poem Maybe a a reference, but not quoted specifically anywhere else in the Bible. No one really knows where it comes from, but it's beautiful. Sleeper, sleeper, awake. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Church, these are the words God is whispering in every one of our ears every morning. In our collective church's ear every morning between now and the day Christ comes back, Awake, my child, rise from the dead. I will shine on you. Yes, you. I will shine on you and in you and all around you. And in doing so, you will not just be in the light, you will be the light. And others will see you because light attracts interest. And when others see you, they will see me because I am the one shining on you and in you and all around you. So awake, my child. Awake, my church. Awake, my people. Rise from the dead because we have work to do. And that work includes not just finding out what's pleasing to God, but then actually doing it. The truth is we've made ourselves experts at finding out what it is that is pleasing to God, but less so in the actually doing it. We've quantified the light. We've measured the light. We've defined the lights. We know the height and the width and the depth of the light. We can point people to the light. But the actual being the light, that's hard. It's much easier to point at the light and say, see, the lovely light, it's over there. Now let us carry on with the rest of our tour this morning. You see, the problem is that God didn't ask us to point out the light. God didn't ask us to define the light. God didn't ask us to quantify or measure the light. God asked us to be the light. And the problem, of course, with being the light is, well, we have to be the light. Not just for people we like or for people who make us happy, but for all the stupid people out there that make us very frustrated. 
But God makes it clear he doesn't want us to do this out of duty or legalism. He wants us to do it out of genuine response to our love for him. And this, frankly, is what life with God requires. It's not something that's forced upon us. It's something we choose to become when all those things we used to be come out of the dark and are exposed to the light. It's the beautiful and painful process of walking with God and becoming more like Christ. It's the metamorphosis that all of our spiritual journeys should take from darkness to light. And when we sign up to be exposed to the light, when we sign up to be people who are the light, we don't get to choose what happens next. What we're saying is that we'll make ourselves available and whatever God has for us is what God has for us. And sometimes what God has for us is not what we wish he had for us. We wish we got a menu of options, but we don't get to choose that. Things are going to come out of the darkness into the light before us and we have to choose what we're going to do with those things. In 2009, I was pastoring a small church in Dallas when I read a book about child trafficking. And it just happened that when I was reading that book about child trafficking in Ghana, Africa, that we were pregnant with our first baby. And we had just found out through an ultrasound that it was going to be a little girl. We knew we had a little girl's name picked out, and it was going to be Micah. And we loved the prophet Micah especially this lovely verse in chapter 6 that says, when it comes down to it, what does God really want from you? It's very simple. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. So we knew we were going to have a little girl, and we'd already chosen this was going to be her name, and that that verse was going to be her life verse. And so every night, every night we're praying that this little girl will be a woman of justice and mercy. putting my hands on my wife's growing belly with this child I've not yet met and begging God that when this little girl saw something that was wrong in the world, she would have the guts to say, not okay. Now I'm reading this book about child trafficking and I'm like, wait, who am I to ask my child to be more courageous and merciful than me? What kind of parent puts that expectation on their child to say, hey, go and do what I didn't have the guts to do? Go and fix this thing that I wasn't willing to fix. And that juxtaposition was so clear and obvious to Stacy and me both that we said, we can't, we can't do that. It's not, fair to, it's not fair to her, and certainly uh, there, there's, more, there's more. The world deserves more. And so we, I called the author of that book, and I, I, found her phone number, well, I found her phone number first on Google, and I called her, and three months later I got off a plane and gone to Africa and went out on the world's largest man-made lake, and I sat in little boats with... Fisher boys and Fisher girls had been sold for $20 because their parents couldn't afford to feed them. And they knew that if they sent their children to work on the lake, uh, that they would at least be able to eat some fish every day. And, and I went out on that lake and I sat next to kids and some ki- those kids sat in my lap and we couldn't speak, but I didn't need to say anything and there was nothing I could have said anyways. And I came home, and Stacey, by this point, is six months pregnant, and I just remember breaking down in our, our house in the suburbs of Dallas and saying, how do you experience something like this? How do you find this sort of darkness and know you have every gift available in the world to become the light and just choose not to do it? How could I possibly live another day 
look my children in the eye someday when they say to me, hey, Dad, did you know this was happening? Yeah, but gosh, I was super busy. Had a great job at the church. Just things were, I just, you know, it just wasn't a good time for our family. I couldn't do that. That moment, God was nudging more than nudging. I don't know what would be after nudging, but there was no nudge. And, and it was clear I needed to respond in whatever way we could. And so we did what a lot of people do. We went and started raising money. And the idea was that we would give that money to someone else and they would solve the problem. And, and we raised a lot of money. And I've always had some propensity at doing that. But over that nine months, raising $75,000, I've discovered another problem. And that was the darkness was more complex than I imagined. And that the light that was in the darkness at that point in Ghana was not actually sustainable and it wasn't actually getting to the root causes of the problem. And so we had to choose again. Do we walk away or do we give more of ourselves to this? Because frankly, we thought we were doing pretty good. So I quit my job at the church and we started Mercy Project without any idea what, what we were doing. And of course, I don't have time and today's sermon. It's not a sermon about Mercy Projects. That's the story uh, nine years ago, ten years ago, that, that most resonates when I think about what it means sometimes to have the, the cost of being willing to walk in the light. And because of, of that, not because of me, but because of God's graciousness towards me and, and other people, super generous people who are here today, and 158 kids that were child slaves are now back with their families reunited. They're, they'll get to have Christmas at home. Yeah, you can applaud. That's no problem. But again, I'm, I'm hesitant to even tell that story because I, I don't want you to think I'm saying, look at this thing I did. I'm saying to you, the darkness is dark and it's hard and it's messy, and it's still not an excuse for us not to walk towards it. And to be frank, there's families in Ghana that will be transformed because people, hundreds of them that have supported Mercy Project, have been willing to walk in that, have been willing to walk in that light. And this church is a part of that story because the two main people that you know in that story of our three U.S. employees, two of them grew up in this church. Clint Askins, Ray Hansen's grandson, went and lived in Ghana for four years as our in-country director and now as our head of operations. And so even those of you who chose to be light by not brutally hurting two teenage troublemakers, when we asked to take your daughters out on dates and when we made fools of ourselves, your fingerprints are all over that story. The interesting thing as I get ready to conclude here or move towards that is when the author wrote Ephesians and they told, told the church at Ephesus to, to, to learn what pleases the Lord. It seems kind of like a weird statement to us. We have to understand that a lot of the people in Ephesus were very, very new Christians, meaning they hadn't grown up Jewish they didn't know who the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was. They really had no context. So when the, when the author says, hey, go find out what pleases the Lord, there was probably people who heard that and were like, I actually should find that out. I, I don't know what pleases the Lord. And that seems odd to us because we have 66 chapters. 
thousand pages, 800,000 words of the Bible that tell us pretty clearly what pleases the Lord. One of the things that pleases the Lord is when people come to him when they're in trouble or hurting or in pain or when we're happy and glad and thankful. And when we take time out of the busyness of our frenzied lives to just sit and dwell on the Lord's loveliness. Something else that pleases the Lord is when people come together. He likes when we come together because he knows we're better together. He made us to be together. You see, aloneness breeds darkness. It pervades. Aloneness pervades darkness. Light invites togetherness. It's really hard to drag our own selves and our own junk into the light. That's why we need each other. One light by itself is helpful. But a lot of lights together sure make things a lot less scary. And I don't think that is an accident. It pleases the Lord when we come together. Unity also pleases the Lord. Not uniformity, but unity. We need to leave space for the things we don't agree on, but we also need to not give up on each other. It's actually a big theme of the first three chapters of Ephesians. This church is different cultures, different backgrounds, learning how to do life together. And the gospel story is about letting Jesus be the center of their church's life and letting the other stuff fall away. And I know this is easier said than done because in real life we have to make decisions about who this and who that. And I'm, I'm not trying to be Pollyanna on this topic, but I think the truth is, if we're honest, I mean really, 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 really honest, we could admit together that a lot of the stuff we say we worry about around unity is really less about unity and more about control and more about fear and more about comforts and, frankly, when we're at our worst, more about power. Jesus is not about any of those things. Jesus is enough. Jesus is what we have to agree on. He's always been enough. He's still enough. And he always will be. Yesterday he was enough. Today he's enough. And tomorrow he's enough. And it pleases the Lord when we stick together over what we share rather than what we don't. And finally, it pleases the Lord when we love him and our neighbors. See, this is, of course, the greatest command when these really smart lawyer guys try to trap Jesus by asking him what his favorite rule is, what his favorite command is, what his favorite part of the law is. And Jesus says, not so fast, my friends. And he answers, of course, that the most important thing in the entire arc of Scripture is that we would love God with everything we had and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. And it is so clear when you read through the Bible that this is the most important thing. Jesus gets the final word on the greatest command, but it's far from the only word. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Hebrew to Greek, from Torah to the Gospels to the Epistles, the one consistent arc throughout the entirety of Scripture is that God wants us to take care of each other. But not just the people inside this building, all the each others we ever meet. Everyone. It's a bummer, isn't it? Over and over throughout Scripture, God's telling us to look out for one another, even when it costs us something. Maybe especially when it costs us something. To put our needs before our others' needs, before our own. It's one of the most obvious and clear ways to please the Lord. And it's one of the hardest ones 
to do because, well, it's hard. But being the light means we love our neighbors. Not once, not twice, not just just at Christmas, but over and over and over, even when we're tired and frustrated and burned out. Being the light means we see people. Not literally just see them, but actually see them. It means we have to slow down enough to see who they are, to see where they came from, to listen to them and to learn from them, to hear their stories, to honor their lives and their feelings and their experiences as valid, even if they differ from our own, maybe especially when they differ from our own. Being the light means we care about the poor and the marginalized and the people on the fringes. We cannot read the Bible with an open mind and miss that God has deep, deep concern for people who keep getting pushed to the sides. We still have those people around us today. Sometimes we don't know where to find them, which is a great reminder that we are the ones with the power. But if we pick up the newspaper, we'll find them. They're in our homeless shelters. They're in our mental hospitals. They're in our border camps, they're in our jails, they're in our food stamp lines, and they're on our street corners, even here in our own town. One of the most meaningful moments of my life, especially around Christmas, was I counted back about 12 years ago. Stacey and I were 25 and 23, and we didn't have any kids yet, and we drove to downtown Bryan, Martin Luther King Street on Christmas Eve and it was dark and it was cold and we found a woman standing on a corner by herself. We drove up there next to her and she immediately walked to the window and we rolled the window down and she looked surprised that Stacy was with me. And we handed her a wad of cash and we asked her to go home to be with her children. I don't know what she did with that money, but God didn't ask me in that moment to create a budget for her. He asked me to see her and to go where it was dark and messy, and Jesus was already waiting for us there because he was with that woman before we got there. And in that moment, we got to be the light. And I remember that story for a couple of reasons. One, it's one of the most significant Christmas presents I've ever gotten, except for the year my parents splurged and got me a Texas A&M starter jacket. Thanks, Dad, again for that. But I also remember that story because I haven't done it since then. Because I'd like to be able to say that's something I've forced and created an opportunity to do, to see that kind of light over and over and over. But the the truth is I haven't done that. And I was reminded of that this week as I wrote this sermon. The last thing I'll say this morning is I wrote a book Tim mentioned about a year and a half ago called Disrupting for Good. It's not a religious book, but it could be. It could easily be called Disrupting for God. And it's really about people who have the courage to find things that they know shouldn't be the way they are and then do something about it. People that are five years old and people that are 85 years old. People that are billionaires and people that are poor. People who went to many years of college and people who never graduated high school. And I I love finding these stories, and I get the chance now to travel around the country and to tell these stories, and I'll tell you what I've actually been a little surprised about, and that is that bankers and doctors and lawyers and all kinds of people are drawn to these stories because they're stories of light. They may not call it Jesus. 
They may not view it as religious, but we're all attracted to those moments, those things that we know are bigger than ourselves. We can feel it when we're around it. We see it. We know it when we see it. And I've been surprised at the way people have responded to these stories, the way people have cried in these public settings, the ways people have been reminded that there really is more to this life than we often remember. And for us, as people who follow Jesus, even more so. And so I'm reminded this morning as we think about disrupting for good, as we think about being light, that if we have the courage to walk towards the light, God always meets us there. It's not going to leave us alone, ill-equipped. If we trust that God is with us, we'll become the light. And when a whole bunch of people like this, a room, a building filled with smart, talented people with resources, choose to become the light, that's what changes the world. And there's no telling how much the kingdom can come on earth right here in this place as it is in heaven. Just because a bunch of ordinary people chose not once, not twice, but over and over and over to become the light with the people right in front of us and the people right behind us and the people that kind of scare us and the people that we're not sure what to do with and the ones who frustrate us and the ones who make us mad and the ones who take our money and the ones who don't pay us back and the ones who take more than they give, just like all of us do in our relationship with God. For once we were darkness, but now in the Lord we are light. So let us live as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So let us try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord, taking no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead exposing them. It is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Sleeper, awake. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. So let us awake. Let us rise from the dead. Let us receive the promise that when we do, Christ will shine on us and in us and all around us. Let there be light, God said. And there was. And he saw that it was good. Let us be light, we say. And we will be. And the world will see that it is good. And God will be pleased. Let us be light. Everyone needs compassion, a love that 